Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, November 9th, we're studying Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 19. In today's text, the author of Hebrews begins to bring his sermon to a close as he summarizes how the heavenly access that the congregation has to God on account of Jesus' service to them now makes a difference in their lives of service to each other here on earth. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. Great to be with you today. Pastor Hill, as we get started, introduce this section to us. We're almost at the end of the book of Hebrews. What should we know as we prepare to look at these verses? Yeah, as you mentioned, we are in the 13th chapter, the final chapter of Hebrews, and our section today is the bulk of that chapter. And here we see the author of the book begin to close things out, and he turns to a series of practical and applicable exhortations for his readers about how they are to live with each other and how they are to live in their lives outwardly in the world. Uh, exhortation is really the operative word of what we're looking at today, where we have a series of, of 10 separate uh, exhortations that the author gives. Um, we don't always talk about what exhortation is, and maybe it's important for us to stop and, and think about it. And exhortation is when we strongly encourage someone or we persuade someone to do something. And it is generally in the scriptures something that we are exhorting them to do because it is good in and of itself. It's not something that we exhort them to do for our own benefit, but for the benefit of their own lives as they live them towards God or as they live them within the Christian community or in love towards their neighbor. Uh, exhortation is also a, a word used a couple verses after we close our section for today in verse 22 of this chapter, where the author of the book calls uh, his book a word of exhortation. As you mentioned, of course, we can view Hebrews as a big, long sermon with uh, the function of exhorting the um, hearers towards uh, a Christian life that they should be living towards one another and in the world. So it's important that we have this exhortation here. It's important that we stop and we examine each one of them because they're incredibly important and should be applied to our lives. The things we should also realize, I think, and seeing what the author's doing here, perhaps this is an insight for pastors and for hearers, is that sometimes we do need to bottom line things for people. Um, we need to just get down to the nitty gritty uh, and bring things down to a very practical level. And that's exactly what happens here. And for Christians who have been well established in the preaching of the gospel and who are constantly reminded of the grace and mercy that we have in Christ, exhortation is an absolutely appropriate thing to take place within the church. And it's not something we should see as counterproductive or as putting people back under the law in a sense that, uh, that would not be helpful. Instead, we see here that third use of the law guiding our Christian lives. And we're mindful, of course, that as we read these exhortations, the law may accuse us as well of where we've fallen short. And so we keep in mind always uh, the gospel of Christ's forgiveness for every one of our sins. Sure. And I mean, you know, we don't forget the previous 12 chapters of Hebrews as we take a look at this section, right? All the ways that the author has described 
and proclaimed how Christ is the one who's given us access to God. He is our brother. That's going to be a pretty key thing for us to keep in mind as we think about our brotherly love to each other. Christ has become our brother first. He is the one who has been our great high priest. All of those things that Christ has done for us to bestow his holiness upon us, that's the foundation for what's here. And so the, the question that's being answered here is now, well, how does that holiness play itself out in our lives? Like what what difference does that holiness make? If I have the holiness of God as a gift, and so do you, then how do we live with each other in that holiness that God gives? So as you said, it's it's not out of place by any means, but it, it flows from the preaching that he's already given, which is, is not unique to Hebrews. This is something that we see throughout the scriptures. It, exactly, yes. And and as you mentioned, you know, the brotherhood of Christ with us and our brotherhood and sisterhood with one another in the Christian faith is something that just really shines through in this section, that as we read these exhortations, we should be putting ourselves in the mindset of Christians living within community with one another in the midst of a world that may not understand us or may not be uh, terribly excited that we're around. But how is it that we then live a life within the community that is compelling not only to those inside of it, but is a witness to those outside? And how do we also appropriately turn our attention towards loving our neighbor outside the church too? So all of that is really covered here in this section. And another thing that I think is interesting as we look at each of these exhortations is we're going to see that um, each one of them does have a basis in the commandments. And this is kind of a good catechetical review for us as we go through these exhortations to see where do each of these urgings spring out of what we already know to be uh, the moral uh, framework that God gives us in his commands. Yeah, and it's uh, the framework of the Ten Commandments, I think, is going to be pretty obvious in a text like this, which is probably also a reminder to be looking for that same framework elsewhere in the scriptures. It's it's very obvious in sections like this, but the, the Ten Commandments stand underneath so many texts of scriptures. The same with, you know, again, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer. There's a reason we have those things in the Catechism, because it does a fountain does provide that foundation for us to to keep in mind what is central to the scriptures. So the Ten Commandments especially are going to be operative here. Let's take a look at the text from Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. That's our text for today. That's Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 19. So Pastor Hill, he starts, let brotherly love continue. The first in this list of exhortations seems to really set the stage for what is to come and and give an overarching theme, but just help us into that simple phrase in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Yeah, it would be easy for us to look over this um, and, and pass it over far too quickly than we should. The author here is reminding his readers that the Christian community is unique, and it is something that forms an intense bond, one that can be likened most easily to the bond that we have between our own biological kin. Um, we, we understand the deep bonds that we have with our family members, although in our modern society that's a little more mobile, um, those bonds, I think, are weakening these days, and um, we should try and put ourselves back in the mindset of those in the ancient world to understand that there was no higher bond, really, than would be within the familial relationship. It was necessary for one's survival in a world that was often very harsh. It was the support network that you would have. Um, when we read in the scriptures about uh, the angst that one who is barren goes through because they're unable to have children, it's all tied up in just how important the family unit is, where it's become a little less important today, although I think we need to re-elevate it. So to say let brotherly love continue, the word behind that is Philadelphia, uh, which of course is, is the love for one's, uh, one's brothers here. And this intense bond is what is given to us in the Christian community. And why does it happen? Well, it happens because, of course, as we understand in the incarnation, Christ becomes our brother in his incarnation, our brother in humanity, our brother in human flesh. And that's a theme that I'd like to see us in the church begin to emphasize once again. We understand very clearly the, the, the divinity of Christ when we see him. He is God in human form, but he is also the... Um, the one who blazes the trail to heaven in his human flesh. And because he is sitting in his human flesh at the right hand of God the Father today, uh, we know that we will follow in the way that he has first gone for us through the grave to the resurrection um, and into eternity. And that's just a wonderful theme that's there for us that I think people in the ancient world picked up on a little bit more easily than we do today. So um, we then, in the Christian community are incorporated into Christ, who is our brother. We then become co-heirs with Christ of all of the blessings of heaven that he has won for us. And then we are co-heirs again with our brothers and sisters in Christ here in the Christian community. So this brotherly love is the foundation for the responsibility for the good of one another that we have within the church. It should be really unthinkable that within the church, one would suffer and the other wouldn't notice in any way. It should be even more unthinkable that one wouldn't care. It, because if you if you don't care for your Christian brother or sister, then you're really no better than one who would not care for their own blood. So um, this 
exhortation also then reminds us of the basis in the commandments that we begin to have here, which here in this one, we see the basis of the commandments, the entire second table of the law. If brotherly love continues amongst the saints, then we will naturally follow in the path of the rest of the second table if we follow its summary, just as Christ says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Um, here, it could even be ratcheted up to say not only your neighbor, but the one who has become even your brother in Christ. So yeah. that that is to love our neighbors as ourselves, beginning within the church. And then, of course, it does extend out beyond that to the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the word brother within the church sometimes becomes one of those throwaway words that we don't always pay that close attention to. So I, I just from my own pastoral practice, when I begin my sermons, I start with grace and peace. I say the text, and then before I begin the sermon, I, I start by saying, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even as a pastor, it's easy for me just to gloss over those words and not think about the full import of what that means. I am addressing my very family that I have because Christ is my brother. And it's it's easy for us just to ignore that. But you know, as, as you were talking about what that means, that you know Christ is our brother first, and then in him, we are a part of his family. I was reminded of, of the way St. John writes in his first epistle, where he talks about, you know, how can you love, say you love God and you haven't seen him, but you're not loving your brother who's right there in front of you. And I think this is definitely something that we need to, to keep in mind as we gather together in the divine service. I'm looking at my own brothers and sisters. They are my brothers and sisters because of Christ. I love him even though I don't see him. So I should love these people next to me. And I'm compelled into that love by being a part of the same family, and again, with Jesus as the big brother. That's such a huge thing. Yeah, this is why it's important that in a congregation we do family type of things together, right? Yeah. Uh, we should be ideally sharing meals together when the opportunity presents itself, and, and maybe not just for fundraisers. We should be um, not living in such siloed lives where uh, the only thing we know about our our fellow Christians is whatever we see on Facebook, you know, from week to week. We should actually live in the real world with our Christian brothers and sisters. And it's difficult uh, in every context. Um, people have different impediments to that. They, they may live quite a geographical distance away from their fellow church members, or, or there may be other things going on there. But uh, to ask as a church, what can we do to look more as if we are a family, um, and how can we care for one another more as if we are a family? Because we are. Um, and then we'll begin to reflect, I think, a little bit more of the reality of the way the church was built to live. Right. And, and again, when you think about the thought of you know inviting people to church, you're not just inviting people to sit there for an hour and listen to someone talk at them. You're inviting them to be a part of this family. Again, and they're a part of that family because Christ is their brother, too. And that's such a that's something that the world has always needed, but just looking around as you were saying right now with the way that we've we've kind of lost that sense of of our earthly families even sometimes to have this forever family as I've heard it called is just that much better for us and we we should hold that out as something that again not just we need because that's what Christ has given but the whole world needs because again that's what Christ has given. Absolutely, couldn't agree more and. Um... It begins to show the church living in a way that's countercultural and yeah. um, interesting to the the world that observes us. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll see that continue as we go forward in these exhortations. So the next one in verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
And this is, a, I think, a, a well-known verse in the book of Hebrews, simply because of that second phrase, almost to the point that we forget the first part, show hospitality to strangers. Let's do that, and then we'll get to the angels part. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah, so we have brotherly love, the love of brother in verse 1, and now we have the love of strangers yeah. in verse 2. These two things are not opposed to one another, but they go hand in hand. This idea of hospitality is something that was, of course, very important in the ancient world. And and there are ways that one could almost um, overemphasize hospitality to the point where the hospitality that you show to someone else reflects on how important you are. And that would be, of course, a, a wrong way of going about this, of, of, you know, outdoing your neighbor in how hospitable you can be. But I don't think we have that danger really in our culture today. Instead, we are we are often very private in the way that we live our lives. And that's not really the way that the, the Lord would intend us to live. Our homes are supposed to be something that are open to other people, that are a place where people traveling can stop and can stay and receive a meal, um, where we would visit together and get to know one another. In fact, in the home is really one of the best places that we can model the Christian life for other people who uh, may not yet uh, share the faith that we hold so dear. Um, we've had the opportunity here to occasionally receive bicyclists that um, will be on a cross-country trip. We're, I guess, the most significant entity in our small little community. So sometimes I'll get a random phone call yeah. saying, hey, we're riding across the country from California to Florida. We just want someone in the community to know that we're going to be there so people don't get worried. And we're just looking for a place to pitch our tent for the night and hopefully not have the police called on us. Is there some way you can help us, Pastor? And um, say, so, well, sure, you know, that's fine if, if that's what you'd like to do. But, um, you know, you actually would be welcome to have dinner with us. And we have a place where you can sleep in the, the heat or the air conditioning and have a good shower. And we had some really interesting experiences getting to know people that way. Um, and I'd like to think that that there is a reward in the sense of, of an internal um, just satisfaction of getting to know someone on that level. In fact, we got a letter from from some cyclists that we had done this for um, probably a month after, and I, I think it made an impact on them, and we were able to, to, to share that hospitality. Now, um, is that going to be some great conversion experience for these cyclists? I have no idea. That's, that's up to the Lord and in his hands. But just the call to say, maybe I should be as hospitable as I can here um, is just not the way we normally think. So uh, it's a real-life example of the love that Christ has shown for us in a very small way that we can show for someone while they're they're in our area. Yeah, so again, show hospitality to strangers. That is the key here. And and if, you know, if the, the example that you give is intimidating to some, I mean, I, I can think of examples where I, I think I was the stranger and I, was, I received the hospitality, especially on things like, you know, something simple as a seminary, choir tour where where there's host families and they had no idea who I was but they received me and showed that hospitality to me I mean so so that if, if the bicyclist example seems a little intimidating there are there are simply there are other ways that this happens but this is a part of the Christian love to show hospitality to the stranger and then we come to the part that really piques people's attention maybe we shouldn't focus too much on it but it's it's worth our, our time to look at what is this talking about that we've some you might have entertained angels unawares. Yeah, and I don't know why it's plural. Why is it unawares? I, I was uh, wondering unaware. the same thing when I read it. I don't know enough grammar to to know why. 
Well, I am unaware of why that is worded <laughs> See, that way. I don't way. think that's right. I don't. I think you're only unaware <laughs> that maybe why it is that way. Maybe it's because there are more than one angel. Maybe, maybe I should so. be unaware of one angel and unaware of multiple. <laughs> um, <laughs> this this harkens us back to a couple major uh, episodes in Genesis that we find in Genesis 18 and 19. And I, I think people will remember these pretty quickly, but I, I guess it's possible that we might not think of them as we first come to this text. Um, Abraham, of course, has the three men who visit him uh, at the Oaks at Mamre. It's a very interesting account there. And um, of course, what does Abraham show them? He shows them hospitality. And what do we find out in the end that, well, the the two are angels and the other is the Lord himself. Um, and I guess others have posited that it's the three persons of the Trinity. Um, I think there there's more than one way we could kind of look at that text. Uh, but here in context with with uh, Hebrews 13, I guess we would say two angels and and the Lord who are there visiting him. And also, then we're, remember, we're reminded of what Lot does with the two visitors who come to him at Sodom. Now, that's a complex um, text for all kinds of different reasons, but nevertheless, what we see is Lot feels as if he has a responsibility for these men who are coming, that it is, it's not only really an option for him to take them uh, into his home, but it's his, it's his moral duty to do so in order to protect the men uh, from the crowds that are outside. Um, he doesn't have the option of not putting himself in his household at risk, so to speak, and writing them off. Uh, he does entertain those angels um, in that uh, text there. So Genesis 18 and 19 are operant. But then I also remember Jesus' words in Matthew 25, um, where he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Um, we have this responsibility to the least of these. And, and these moments that may seem insignificant to us, may be very significant in hindsight as we um, have a sense of obligation and a duty of care for our neighbor or as we ignore that uh, obligation and duty of care. Thinking about this second exhortation about the love of stranger, the hospitality, what what commandment would you would you keep in mind here? Or is this another overarching second table of the law? Well, I, I would I can see the second table of the law, but I'd begin to see this in a fifth commandment type of view, because we're concerned with the bodily welfare of our neighbor when they're traveling. And uh, in the ancient world, especially, you know, it's not like they're going to stop by the fast food joint in town. Uh, they're going to show up hungry. Uh, they maybe have been able to glean from the edges of the fields that have been left standing for that purpose. But um, a warm, warm meal and a safe place to lay one's head really is a protection of the body against the dangers that can befall someone as they're traveling and away from their family and their support system. And um, what's interesting is when one would take a stranger into the hospitality of their home, they were under the protection of that household as if they were a member of the family for the whole time that they're there. And it reminds me also of the commands that are, are replete in the Old Testament about the duty of responsibility over the sojourner in the land, um, for you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. So that God's people had received hospitality and were taken in in Egypt during the famine. And therefore, it's a part of their entire history that they too have the obligation and the joyful obligation and duty to share the same towards others. Yeah. Now, with a couple of minutes here before the break, help us into the next exhortation, remembering those who are in prison. How do we need to understand this? Right. So here, I think our mind would go to our modern prison context first. And in context here, that's not exactly what's taking place. 
the phrase comes at the end of verse three, since you are also in the body. So we are speaking of fellow Christians here, uh, parts of the body of Christ who have been put in prison. And then the other phrase is those who are mistreated. So we have an obligation to care for our fellow Christians who are enduring hardship for the sake of the faith. That can happen in ways that are uh, quite pronounced, or those can happen in ways that are, are a bit more minor, and they can happen in ways that are near to us geographically and ways that are far away. Um, the prison context in the ancient world is not the uh, three hots in a cot mentality, right? You don't, uh, no one goes to prison in the, uh, in the ancient world with the guarantee of, of warmth and clothing and food as it happens today. People would have to rely upon their family members or the charity of the community to provide their food and clothing to them while they are imprisoned. Um, family members and community members would have to come by to them and deliver these things to them. It was a strain, uh, not just on the incarcerated person, but a great strain on the family and the individual. Um, and so, so we are reminded here by the author that there are indeed Christians who are suffering and, and it is a part of our body. And therefore, as the body of Christ, we rejoice together in times of rejoicing. We suffer together and, and bear up under suffering together uh, when part of the body will be suffering. And so I, I like to put it in this way that um, this bond of Christian fellowship that we have is, is organic in the Christian body, that we feel things for our fellow Christians on a deeper level than we would feel otherwise. And it should be um, unthinkable, of course, that a family member would be forgotten in a time of persecution. So we certainly would not forget our Christian brothers and sisters. And we really glorify certain notions of uh, the bonds that we have as countrymen, right? And we say, you know, uh, no soldiers left behind as a prisoner of war. I mean, and that's a good thing. Uh, but the same then is true. It should be just as unthinkable that the Christian community would neglect the members of the body who are imprisoned or mistreated for the name of Christ. And again, I think we have here a fifth commandment connection where we're looking at our obligation for caring for the physical needs of others. Yeah, absolutely. So remember those in prison. Remember those who have been persecuted for the faith. Care for them. No family member left behind. We're going to take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Nate Hill this morning about Hebrews 13. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, November 9th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 19 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we made it up to verse 4, where the author of Hebrews speaks about marriage and the marriage bed and the way that Christian holiness operates there. Take us into verse 4. Right. So in verse four, we, I think, can separate this up into a couple separate aspects of, of this exhortation as well. And the first, which should be heard independently, is let marriage be held in honor among all. So the obvious connection here to the commandments is to the sixth commandment, of course. And um, this reminds us that marriage in itself is a very good thing. And we really live in a cultural moment where there is a great um, disdain for marriage and it's growing. Um, especially in the movement of, of young men as they look at marriage and as they have seen modeled for them in their families and in their culture, the failing of marriage on a repeated basis. Many young men are looking today and saying, this is a bad bet. Why would I enter into some kind of an estate where uh, statistically I have a 40% or 50% or whatever the prevailing statistic is chance of it failing, and then I bear the undue price of the, of the failure of the marriage and the undue costs on the back end. Um, it's a really cynical view, but it's really becoming pervasive amongst younger people. The age for marriage is drastically increasing. The age for a first marriage uh, for both men and women is pushing 30. Um, for, for men, it might be almost over 30. And for women, it's not very far behind. So, so we should hold marriage in honor amongst Christians. And we should see then that marriage is an honorable estate. It's the first estate it, that is given to us in all of uh, the scriptures. Mm -hmm. It should come before the, the uh, pursuit of wealth and career and education. Um, all of those things should be seen as secondary to this gift that God has given. And so marriage should be seen as the norm for Christians, except for those who possess the exceptional gift of lifelong chastity, um, or have been uh, been placed in that type of a life, either by their own decision or, or not by their own decision. But marriage should be especially important within the church. Um, in fact, I think today that honoring marriage and holding it up is one of the most countercultural things that people are able to do uh, today. I don't know if you've uh, come across any of this, but there's this tradcon movement. Have you heard of this? Pastor I've, I've seen some things. I I don't I don't follow that that closely. But. It it generally tends to be a movement amongst younger people who have married at a younger age, hmm. and they post about what their married life is like on you know YouTube or wherever people are are on social media, and people look on at this thing that would have been very normal for our grandparents' generation of of marrying you know late teens early twenties, um, and they look at this life that they've created with really traditional gender roles. Um, and they're very happy and they're posting about it, you know, online and everybody else is looking on. I think they're, they're surprised by it. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a, a growing uh, trend to elevate marriage once again in a culture where it's been really brought low. Sure, sure. And I think, I mean, so we, we should be careful here because as you said, marriage has been dishonored in our society for quite some time. And, and it was being dishonored at the time Hebrews was written. So we, we shouldn't somehow think that there was some golden age. But but as you said, we've, we've seen marriage dishonored in our world and in our recent memory for quite some time in a variety of ways. 
you know, going going back even in areas that we think are the golden age. And I do think we, we should be careful as we think about how we begin to honor marriage again, that we don't just sort of like swing back into what we consider the good old days, but that we would rather consider what the scriptures teach about marriage so that it's not just like, oh, hey, look, I'm living my, like my grandparents. But there's certainly wisdom to, to be learned from those who have preceded us in the faith. But there's also wisdom to, to be learned by not falling into the sins that they would have struggled with in honoring marriage at their time. If that makes, does that make sense? Or, I mean, I know like, yeah, so the whole TradCon thing, sometimes it's like, oh, I'm just going to go back to the way it was, but let's make sure we go back to what scripture says and not just sort of gut, gut reaction to something that we don't like right now. Right. Uh, and I think maybe another way of putting this is that if we're to restore the outer um, estate of marriage, right, and reestablish it as, as a good thing within the church, then we have to give extra attention that when we live within this estate, that we are living in it rightly and faithfully. Absolutely. And so that's the second half of the exhortation is once marriage is held in honor among all is a good thing, well, then you have to get down to the real work, which is that the marriage bed be undefiled yep. and that one live faithfully within that estate of marriage. And so the outward, the outward aspect and the inward aspect need to be in sync with one another rather than being the whitewashed tombs, so to speak that have outward appearances put together and then inwardly filled with lust or unfaithfulness or all of the things that can befall people and just be done in the cover of, of night and, and in supposed secrecy. The reminder then is God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. What you think you can hide, God certainly sees. And the reminder there uh, is apt, especially in the light of what you've mentioned. Yeah, well, and I think... Like you were saying, this is certainly a point that our society needs to hear and that we in the church need to hear when it comes to honoring marriage and letting the marriage bed be undefiled. These these are such important points. And the reason it's so important, because it, that we should always keep in mind, is that there is this very, very good gift, which is marriage, one that God gave before the fall into sin. And anytime you talk about the Sixth Commandment, you think of all those sins that bring probably the greatest shame on this side of heaven— and, and it's easy to, to be filled with guilt. And there is a place, right, again, the law needs to do its work. But every time we talk about this, we should always do so in the context of just how precious a gift this is. That, that this is the reason we want to hold this in such honors, because God has given such a wonderful thing here. And to, to start from that foundation, I think, will help us to a, a more godly way of life that comes always in repentance and faith in Christ uh, to, to doing what is exhorted to be done here. Exactly. And so so those people falling short in this area is, of course, nothing new. Um, we have the example of Christ and his ministry to the woman caught in adultery. We have many uh, Pauline passages where he speaks of the types of sins that we were involved in before called by the gospel. And many, many of you were adulterers and murderers, um, but we're called to a new life, a life that reflects um, honoring the things that God has, has set forth as good and honorable. Yeah. All right. So countercultural in our approach to marriage, honor and keep the bed undefiled. Then countercultural in our approach to money, verses five and six. Don't love money. Take us, take us there. Yeah. Yeah. The we of course have to keep our lives free from the phrase here is love of money. There are many people who say it doesn't say you know money's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, and that's very true. But it it shouldn't just be a way to wiggle out of of really <laughs> reflecting right. deeply upon this. Right. Um, because here's the other half, be content with what you have. Yeah. 
And then we have this promise where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And here we see money juxtaposed against uh, faith in the promise of God. So I think money, of course, is just a means of exchange if it's understand understood rightly. Um, but most people don't understand it rightly. And they begin to see that money is what they think is going to solve all of their problems. And to be honest, money can solve a lot of your problems. Uh, it, it can, in the short term, fix things and make things easier upon oneself. But it will very quickly become your God if it becomes what you look to in order to fix what's wrong in your life. So it's probably one of the most pernicious um, temptations that we have surrounding us. Um, we are reminded, though, that the Lord is the one to whom we look in times of trouble or fear. That's how we uphold the first commandment. So the first commandment comes into play, but then, of course, the seventh commandment against stealing and what the love of money can cause us to do in getting things in a way that only appears right, and, of course, coveting in the ninth and tenth commandments. And I think we should remember that there are plenty of problems that money can't fix yep. um, and problems that the Lord can fix. If we look at those with with great riches and wealth, um, it will insulate them from many of the world's problems, uh, but it will not save you from disease. It will not save you from calamity. Uh, it will not save you from those, those things that are common to all man and uh, things that people think that their money can really protect them from. Yeah. And just to, to point out briefly the, the wisdom of the Lord in his commandments. So if, if I see that money is becoming an idol for me, and I know that, and I want to repent and, and be faithful to the Lord. Well, what do I do with that money? I start to give it away. Well, well, what do I do? Well, I, st I start then to show brotherly love and hospitality to strangers and remembering those who are in prison and caring for my, my wife and children with that money instead of, instead of hoarding it and using it as an idol, right? That, that money now is turned in service to the neighbor. So you see how these things, you know, relate to each other and, and go together, the, the wisdom that the Lord gives. Uh, help us into the next exhortation. Remember your leaders in verses 7 and 8. Right. So here in verses 7 and 8, we're uh, reminded of the fourth commandment, which speaks to us about those that God has put in authority over us, beginning, of course, with our parents, but standing in for all uh, God-given authority, both spiritual and temporal. But here, I think the primary concern is for spiritual leaders. We are told that we should consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Their, their lives should be lives that evidence that what they preach is something sincere and something worthy of imitation. And as you look to someone who is your spiritual leader or your spiritual mentor, someone who um, has been meaningful to you in your faith, what you're seeing is the result of a life lived over a longer term than your own in faith and obedience towards the Lord and, of course, in repentance. And I think what we'll see there is that when we live a life of sincere faith that's put into action, under most circumstances, um, all things being equal, it'll result in an outcome of our life that's full of joy and contentment and, and many earthly happinesses and rewards. And I guess you could even technically say prosperity if we properly understand it, not in terms of money, but of just all of the good gifts that, that God gives and we simply you know, receive by grace from him. And that's not to say that circumstances can't change around us. It's not to be some kind of spiritual guarantee. Um, but generally speaking, when we live our lives according to God's word, 
um, good, many good blessings follow. So as we see our spiritual leaders and those who have gone before us and the outcome of their way of life, it should be something we wish to imitate. And perhaps even when those people who have gone before us are enduring great trials and enduring great earthly hardships, maybe that's especially when we're motivated to imitate their faith, because it shows that through their faith, they're able to endure whatever the world may throw their way. Yeah, and all of this is based on Jesus, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the author and founder of our faith, as the writer of Hebrews has already said. And this verse, I think, it provides a, a bit of a bookend to this, this whole sermon epistle. Back in chapter 1, where the author was talking about the superiority of the Son, who was made flesh for us, superior over angels, he quoted from Psalm 102, and, and in verse, this is Hebrews 1, verse 12, he has this about Christ, you are the same and your years will have no end. So you start to see how he is starting to wrap things up, pulling many threads together here in his sermon. Now, as as we continue then in chapter 13 with these exhortations, we, we come to this talk of, of diverse and strange teachings to watch out for them. And there's a number of things that, that go along with us in this next section that starts here in verse 9. Help us to, to get started there. Yeah, so again, uh, not being led away by false doctrine is, is essentially the heart of this. And I think what we're seeing in this exhortation, verses 9 to 15, is that uh, the Hebrew, uh, the, the recipients of the book of Hebrews are being urged not to be pulled into controversies of theology, especially those that relate to elevating the old covenant to a place that it no longer inhabits once the new covenant has been established by Christ. So a point is made here that our access to God doesn't happen inside the camp, so to speak, or where the sacrificial system is taking place. And at this time, um, we do believe that the temple still stands, likely at the time of this authorship, and this would have been a real temptation and a real object lesson to say, go to the place where Christ suffered and died, which is not um, it, at the top of the, the temple mount, but instead outside the camp at Calvary. And that is now where we have our access uh, to God outside the camp. And we don't look then towards Jerusalem, the earthly city, as an end in and of itself, but we look to the promised eternal heavenly Jerusalem, so to speak, that's to come at the last day in the new heavens and the new earth. So the sacrifices that we are to offer as Christians are spiritual sacrifices of praise, as it mentions, uh, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And we should be avoiding the temptation to go back to that system that admittedly seems a lot more uh, practical and immediate in the sense that all of the sacrifices can be seen and heard and smelled and, and tasted in a sense, um, but instead those all were to show forth what Christ would do for us, and we are to boldly live within them. Yeah, I mean, that, that note in verse 10 that we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, I think, at least I've, I've usually understood that as a reference to the Lord's Supper, that, that we have this altar, the, the fulfillment, and those who serve at the tent, they still are living in the shadow, and those are two different things. So, so again, live in this fulfillment, which, yes, is, is outside the camp and maybe doesn't look as glorious, uh, but as the author of Hebrews has made plain throughout, Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. And, yes, you're, you're going to come to him outside the camp. You're going to bear reproach. Uh, but it's but it's worth it. It's it's this is the fulfillment. This is the substance. So don't go back to the shadow. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a wonderful reminder that what God offers us in the new covenant, although it does not maybe meet the eye with such um, 
such a stark effect immediately as the Old Testament uh, system does. Uh, what is offered there is is far superior. Yeah, well, and I think so. You know, we've talked about the countercultural nature of several of these things so far, and this thought of of going outside the camp and bearing the reproach that Christ endured is something for us to to keep in mind. In a different context, to be sure, I, I don't think most Christians today are being tempted to go back to the old covenant because that's not the place where there's going to be the, the earthly glory anymore. But I do think there is this temptation to, you know, kind of hang hang out in this earthly city, right? Rather than, than sticking it with the heavenly city, the to hang out here in the earthly city and to, to think that that's going to make life better, to stay with Christ outside the camp to bear his reproach, I, I think helps us with a lot of the things that are happening in this chapter. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, our lives essentially are to be cruciform lives, right? Lives that are conformed to the pattern that Christ has, has laid down for us. And the ultimate expression of that is in his sacrificial death and, and of course, the resurrection that becomes ours in our baptism, too. So, um, uh, you know, the best way to think about the Christian life and what we should expect out of it is, well, what, <laughs> what, was, what was Christ's life like? It was certainly filled with many moments of great joy and contentment and teaching and um, and just just wonderful things that happened throughout all of his ministry, yet he always knew that his purpose was to come and be the sacrifice for the world. And so we too bear our crosses, follow in his path, and live lives of, of servant love towards uh, those who are around us. Now, toward the end of this, we do see the matter of the sacrifice of praise to God. That, that was mentioned in verse 15. I think you talked about that. What about in verse 16? the sacrifices that are pleasing to God being the sharing what you have and doing good to others. Yeah, so that gets us to, I think, what I'd view as, as a next exhortation here. Um, don't neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This gets back, I think, to the seventh commandment again, um, and it's almost uh, picking up that theme again about the love of money. Um, what we possess and what God has given us, just as you mentioned earlier, is not to be used only for ourselves, but is to be put in use for the sake of, of the Lord. We are to be generous to others, just as Christ has been generous to us. Uh, we're to share as we have, have freely received, so too we, we ought to freely give. And um, this just gets to this idea of how we ought to be living um, and thinking of our lives in this way outside of the congregation as well. Uh, I'm sure you probably mentioned this to your uh, congregation as well as I've mentioned it to mine, is that it is, of course, important that we are generous in our tithes and offerings and support the work of the Lord's house, and uh, that's all very, very necessary. But that should not be the sum total of what we do with our money in relation to what God calls us uh, to do in lives of generosity. Um, <clears throat> when we see that there is a need that surrounds us from a neighbor, and maybe that's something that money can fix, or maybe it's something that our time can fix, uh, the first thing we do is that we seek to fill that need ourselves. Um, I One of the really cool things about my church is that the bonds, I think, are kind of deep between community members. And I don't get calls at the office very often saying, hey, pastor, um, you know, I need a ride to a doctor's appointment. It can happen occasionally, but 10 times to one, somebody in the com community has already seen to that need that that person has had, and it hasn't had to run through the congregation, so to speak. Um, there are other things where um, people have needs when they're sick or need someone to cook a meal for them that 
sometimes we manage those things through the congregation. Other times the community just rallies and, and does that automatically. So whenever you see a need that your neighbor has, rather than referring them to the church or referring them to the nearest government program, um, perhaps if it's a need that you can fill, um, just do it and and let that be an act of service, not just towards your neighbor, but towards God. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly a, a full, whole life view of stewardship that isn't just relegated to what I put in the offering plate on Sunday morning, but rather seeing every moment of my life as an opportunity to to be a living sacrifice, to borrow the, pra- the phrase from Romans 12. The same ideas is at play here. Now, take us then into to verse 17. We've got the leaders coming back here. Are these the spiritual leaders yet again? I think so. Um, now, of course, when we say that these are spiritual leaders, we, of course, owe a debt to our civil leaders as well, and we shouldn't forget that. But here, I think we're coming back again to this fourth commandment, and here we know that there's talking about spiritual leaders because it says these are the leaders that are keeping watch over your souls, which is, of course, the role of spiritual leadership rather than than of those leading in the civil realm. And here we see this phrase that... Um, uh, weighs heavy upon me, as I'm sure it does you, that the leaders are keeping watch over your souls, the hearer's souls, as those who will have to give an account. Um, Now, that's a a reminder to pastors and spiritual leaders that uh, there is a burden to the leadership of the Christian community. Um, It's it's a good thing. It's a a burden that Christ bears with us and for us, but uh, this is not a... uh, verse that ministers of the gospel can just write off as being insignificant, Um, that we will have to give an account to the Lord over the spiritual leadership that we have had over the flocks in our care, Um, and it's a a heavy burden. So I think it's something that pastors need to remember and people in the congregation need to remember as well. There's a lot of respect for the pastoral office that exists within our congregations. It's a very good thing. Um, And oftentimes pastors will say, well, you know, it's just one God-pleasing vocation amongst many. You know, I could just as easily have been uh, a trash man and God would be equally pleased with me. And that's very, very true. Um, But it is one that comes with an additional burden that others are not given within their vocations of the account being given to God for for their ministry. Um, And so we see that the role of the hearers then is to let the job of the pastor, his vocation, be a joy and not something that causes them groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's this kind of circular logic. So the hearers can conduct themselves in a way that will make the pastor's life a joy rather than cause him to groan. And why should they do that? Well, they should do it because it's good in and of itself, but also because if they make his ministry a groaning, it will in turn not be good for them. Um, and, And this gets to this notion that I think we see in churches, oftentimes we can have a cycle between pastor and congregation that is descending downward and downward when um, a pastor feels mistreated and then he's overburdened and then he uh, may end up falling into a mistreatment of his flock and then they'll often spurn the pastor's authority. If, If that's a cycle going on in your congregation, your job is to look at yourself and say, how can I break that cycle? As a hearer, how can I make my pastor's life a joy? As a pastor, how can I live in self sacrificial love? towards my hearers and, and turn this cycle around. Yeah, and I think, again, it's, it does start with obey your leaders, but you do see that mutual relationship that's described here that is, is intended to be a, a joy to both pastor and people. 
uh, together underneath the Lord. Now that, that brings us to the last exhortation in this section, in verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. It's so bad that he didn't didn't give us his name there. Pray for I know. us by name. Oh, no. He had the opportunity but didn't say. So, that's okay. Pray pray for us. And and this is one of those things that sometimes I think we leave till the end. And and certainly he puts it at the end, but and not because it's the least important though. Perhaps this is the most important and that's why he leaves it till the end. Pray. So we got about 2 minutes here, Pastor Hill. It's a good place to end, I think, is on the the importance of prayer for our leaders, for each other within the Christian church. Help us to wrap things up with the idea of praying for each other. Right. The nature of prayer, and since we had a commandment to ground everything in so far, we should be reminded that prayer is grounded in the second commandment. Uh, The Lord reveals his name to us so that we might use it rightly instead of wrongly, that we could call upon him, uh, that we could pray and praise and give thanks to him. So prayer is an amazing thing. In fact, I was reading in Genesis the other day um, about um, how after the fall, there's a time where that natural communion with God is is broken, of course, but then uh, there is a day when they begin to call upon the name of the Lord, right? Uh, it's our connection to the God with whom we have naturally broken that relationship, and he reaches out to us by giving us his name that we might call upon him. So um, prayer for one another, and especially for those in positions of authority, is this God-pleasing use of his name, and it's a humbling thing. I'm sure you've had people say, Pastor, I pray for you daily. Yeah. Um, I talk about something that gets your, your attention. Yeah. Um, I love this phrase, though, too, that says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Hmm. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I think it reminds us that we can pray for all kinds of things. We can pray for forgiveness. We can pray for God to grant us some kind of request that we need. But here, I think the prayer is that God would grant them the strength to continue the course that they they know they have already taken um, and that they continue to uh, seek to fulfill and run this course faithfully as God set it before them. Um, so what can we do as Christians? We should definitely re-emphasize prayer in our lives knowing that uh, the biblical witness is full of examples of the prayers of God's people bearing much fruit for the good of the church. And we should be reminded that especially for those who carry great burdens, uh, we should be praying for them daily and regularly. And you're right, it's there at the very end because it is seen as maybe his most earnest appeal to them. Pastor Nate Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 19. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. Christ has granted us access to God in heaven, and now the holiness that he freely bestows on us makes its way into our lives so that we treat each other as holy brothers and sisters in Christ. Here is this gift of holiness. Let it go forth in your lives, keeping each other in prayer constantly. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews 13, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.